I have six passages. Let me see. One, two, three, four. No, three. Really four passages for you to turn to this morning. The first of those is in the book of Ephesians. So you can turn there while I'm giving you sort of a plan for the morning. This is an, this is an union? No, this is a union with Christ message. And yet another. We're in a series of sermons that are dealing with what it means to be in union with Christ. Now, I'll tell you right now, that is not, I mean, some of y'all that are, you know, maybe here for the first time or here first a few times, like, man, I was really here hoping to hear something really spectacular. It's not very spectacular, but really, I want to tell you, it is the essence of the good news. One of the things that we bumped into in these last few months is realizing that it may not sound really um, exciting, but it is the good news of our union with Christ by faith. I mean, it is every bit of the gospel and good news. Uh, it's so much more robust than pray this prayer and you'll be saved. I mean, it really is. And I, I trust that God can use that. I don't want to dismiss that as a church or, a, or an evangelist or a preacher that may share a message that's pretty thin like that. But that's a tic-tac, really, to the, the, the meal that union with Christ is and has become for us in these last few months. It is the good news. And um, one of the things, just to summarize, I'm not going to summarize all the sermons. There are a handful, five, I think this is part five. So there are four other sermons that you can listen to that we had the chance to, to consider over these last couple of months. Um, but this is the essence of it. What we found that by our union with Christ, by faith, that his sinlessness is counted and reckoned as ours. Okay, that in and of itself is really good news. His sinlessness is reckoned as ours, as if we were in the wilderness resisting Satan. Now, we obviously weren't. We've all failed in the wilderness. But you think about Jesus resisting Satan in the wilderness and how amazing that was, that valiant, that that perfection that he achieved there and that strength the good news a part of the good news of union with Christ means that his sinlessness is reckoned as yours by faith okay the other half of the good news is that your sinfulness is reckoned as his any other sinners in here that need to hear that I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm betting I'm not the only one that really needs to hear that some of the stuff that I've fouled up over the years was reckoned as his. That's really good news. Some of the stuff that I fouled up yesterday. Anybody else? That's good news. Our sinfulness is reckoned as his, and his sinlessness is reckoned as ours. God thought of Christ's sinlessness being ours and our sinfulness being his. And the beauty of this is that his victory over death by our union with him becomes our victory over death. His resurrection was and is ours. We're not talking just figuratively either. We were talking realistically in the big picture. More real than real is our resurrection is as sure as his. Because we are raised with him. So we've spent some time over the last few weeks considering this. Considering many of the aspects of what it means to be in Christ. What we're going to do this morning and at least next, next Sunday morning. It was going to be all this morning. But I'll tell you about that in a minute. 
What we're going to do these next couple Sundays is consider what it means to be, uh, for Christ to be in us. Okay, we've looked at what it means to be in Christ, and what we're going to look at this week and next week is what it means for Christ to be in us. Okay, so first we're going to start with how. How is that accomplished? And then we're just going to look at one outcome of Christ dwelling in us. But first, let's deal with the how. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. I want to show you here in these next couple verses that Christ being in us or Christ in us is more than us just agreeing with him about some stuff. Okay? It's so much more than us just agreeing with him about some stuff. All right, look at this passage, chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend all uh, with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, this passage I'm going to come back to again in a moment, but I just want to draw out this passage specifically, verse 17. He's, he's praying for something here. He's pining for something that they would know and connect to something so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. A little confession for you. I grew up in a very traditional Baptist church, which I cherish. My folks are still there. And occasionally when I'm home, I visit this, this church with them. And it's still a treasure to me. I, I'm thankful for my upbringing in this church. But one of the things that's very um, familiar to me is the concept of asking Jesus into your heart. Okay, most of you that have been around maybe traditional church for a period of time, you know that phrase. Now, in the last 10 years, I've had a little shift where I've grown uncomfortable with that statement, with that phrase, with that sort of language about conversion. Now, I've, I've come almost full circle. But I think my discomfort came from sort of this picture. I was asking Scott back there, what was the name of this movie when I was a little kid? Now, he would not know that because he wasn't even born when I was a little kid. But I thought, he's kind of a movie guru. You know, he and Lindsay, they know all the movies and all. So I thought that he might be able to help me with the name of this movie. Where somebody was shrunk down into this tiny little, um, it was like a team of people that were shrunk down. And they went through the human body. Incredible journey. There's a magic school bus is what Scott was thinking of. Was <laughs> Incredible journey. I should have known Jerry would know. But listen, this shot that... I was a little kid when I watched this movie, and it just literally, I mean, I, it devastated me. It was scary to me, this th thought, going through the body. The body's scary. It's an adventure zone. I mean, there's crazy stuff going on there. But for me, I guess in the last 10 years, what happened, I, I'm, I'm looking at this statement, asking Jesus into my heart, and I'm envisioning this tiny little door in my heart with this tiny little wee Jesus and the magic school bus are in this little vessel that goes into my heart and he doesn't leave. And I didn't like that thought, honestly, because it makes for a little tiny Jesus. And I don't like the thought of a little tiny Jesus. But I've come full circle because of a passage like this, because he's talking about Christ dwelling in our hearts. Now, he's not talking our physical hearts. He's talking about our inner being where things are most important to us. The, the person that's looking back at you in the mirror, that inner being, the most um, 
personal place, quiet, inner space that you can possibly think of about Christ dwelling in there. That's what he's talking about. Now, I don't know if you paid attention in science class, but I did. I liked science. It was one of my favorite topics. So when I was a little kid, I'm paying attention in science class. And I remember when we talked about science stuff that when we're talking about objects or people in, in occupying a space, that they're occupying that space and they can't occupy other spaces because they're in that space. Okay, that's maybe science 101. I don't know. That's really, that's, that's entry-level science, right? So if we're trying to figure out for a minute how Christ is going to indwell my heart and my inner being and my most inner man, then we have to ask the question, well, wait a second, where did we see him last? We saw him last with the gospels ascending to the Father's right hand in a real fish-eating, scar-bearing human body. Now, it's a pretty spectacular body because he can like pass through doors, you know, where the doors shut and he just shows up in the room and they're like, oh, it scares them to death. That'd be crazy. It's a pretty amazing body. It's a resurrected body, but it is a human body. He's going to spend eternity in that human body that he is in right now as he's sitting by the Father's right hand. His human presence in the throne room with God is first fruits of our human presence in our resurrection bodies eventually in heaven with him. It's a good thing that we see him in human body. He's not some sort of spirit that's up there floating around sitting on a cloud. He's in a real human body. That's where we saw him last. He ascended to the Father's right hand. So how then is he in here? It's a good question. We might wonder that. I hope you're wondering that by now. Let's ask and answer that question. We asked it. Let's answer it. Turn to John chapter 14. Second place I wanted to have you turn this morning. John chapter 14. And you can put a little uh, bookmark or something. Some of y'all have like doilies and stuff covering your Bibles. You can put a doily in there, whatever it is that you have carrying, carrying around in there. Marker or something. Because we're going to come back to Ephesians chapter 3. John chapter 14. We're going to try and make sense of how Christ dwells in our hearts. Okay, I don't know if I clarified. I'm okay with that statement now. Somebody asking Jesus into your heart. I've gotten over the magic school bus thing, the incredible journey thing. I'm beyond that. I'm not freaked out by that anymore. That's okay. It's cool. If you say that, your kids are saying that, or you're saying that, keep saying that. That's, that's a good thing. Okay. All right. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. This is a passage of scripture beginning in chapter 13 that goes all the way through 17 that takes place at the Lord's Supper on the night of Jesus' arrest. It's a lot of airtime. If you want to know what went down on the night of Jesus' arrest, this is a great place to go because it is the most exhaustive handling of that time over the Lord's Supper, at the Lord's Supper. He taught a lot. He spoke a lot. whole chapter's worth of material in that section. So let's see what he's talking about on the night of his arrest. Now, if you knew you were going to be arrested and nailed to a cross tomorrow, you're going to spend some time with those people that you've spent three years with. You're probably going to be pretty specific about things that you consider that are very important the night before you're arrested, right? I, I think I would be. I spent three years with these guys. I've spent 33 years on earth. This is the night before I'm arrested and nailed to a cross tomorrow. I'm going to talk about some stuff that's really important. Okay, so now that we've contextualized this in John chapter 14, beginning in Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. If you've seen where this is going, then you're seeing the right thing of how Christ dwells in us. 
I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper. There's a capital H in my Bible. This is leading to where we're going. To be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. He's talking future tense things. Something's going to happen at some point in time where this Holy Spirit that he's been speaking of, this spirit of truth that's been dwelling with you is going to at some point in time be actually in you. Okay, let's see what he says next. I will not leave you as orphans. He's going to leave them in the flesh some seven weeks later. He's going to ascend in the flesh to the Father's right hand. And remember, he can't occupy two spaces. He's in the flesh in the Father's right, at the Father's right hand. But he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. There's union with Christ. Good news. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. If you're starting to follow the plan here or the, the lead of where I'm going, you're realizing what we're talking about and what you're, you might be gleaning. is What he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to leave you as orphans because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who has been with you. He's going to move in you as I go to be in the Father's right hand. And through him, I will continue to be in you. That's how Christ is in our wee little hearts. And I've used wee little hearts. I'm talking in your inner being. That's how Christ will dwell in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to just make a little mental note here that what comes after chapter 14 in John is chapter 15. Profound, isn't it? Yeah. We're going to come back to that later. You'll need to know that. You need to notice that what he had been talking about in chapter 14 is what we're going to take a closer look at in chapter 15 here in a minute. But let's first get back to how... Christ is in us. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is the third place I'm having you turn this morning. I'm not going to count Ephesians 3 that I'm going to have you go back to here in a moment. And then we're going to come back to John chapter 15 and we're going to spend the rest of our morning in John chapter 15. Okay? All right. Acts chapter 2. This is pretty cool. Beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, this is seven weeks after, um, I said Christ ascended seven weeks later. I think it was 40 days later. This is seven weeks later is Pentecost after Passover. This is seven weeks after Christ has been crucified. Okay, the Passover and then seven weeks later is Pentecost. This is the day of Pentecost and they're all together in one place and suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay. This was what Christ was speaking of when he said, the Holy Spirit has been with you, but he will be in you. That happened right here. The Holy Spirit moved into them together, a room full, apparently a sizable room full of believers, and it rested on each of them. It moved into them together as a people, and it moved into them, yes, individually. 
You hear lots of language from this pulpit in this church about the role of the, the, the view of the church. But you should also know that, yes, he moved into the believer individually. You'll see some of that unfold here in these next few minutes. Now, beginning in, or continuing on in verse 14, let's see what happens. The Spirit has moved into these people, not figuratively, but literally he's moved in. And let's see what happens. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Now, remember, this is the same Peter that seven weeks earlier was the biggest chicken you can possibly even imagine. A maiden girl says, hey, weren't you with Jesus? Jesus who? I don't know who you're talking about, scary maiden girl. You, 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 you could clobber me, I guess. I don't know. The biggest chicken of Passover is now a bold preacher of Pentecost. Something happened to him. He saw the risen Lord and... Something moved into him. Someone moved into him. And this is what happens when the Holy Spirit moves in. Peter, standing with the elect, and lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is just fulfilled scripture, fulfilled prophecy. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's go all the way through verse 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Listen especially to what Peter says next. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified, you killed him by the hands of lawless men, and God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now... This is the day that the Holy Spirit moves in. Okay, and this is the day that we get to see what the Holy Spirit does when he moves in. He testifies to Jesus. Look at those last two verses that we just read. Three verses. Men of Israel. Peter's preaching. The former chicken of Passover, now the bold preacher of Pentecost with the Holy Spirit now indwelling him. He preaches these words about Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, signs. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified, but God, verse 24, raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What's happening there is what happens when the Holy Spirit moves into a believer. He testifies to Jesus. Ministries that make gobs of stuff about the Holy Spirit are missing what the Holy Spirit does. 
Man, you want to diagnose ministries that are so focused on the, the sign gifts and the sensational sign gifts about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit this and the Holy Spirit that. Every sermon is about the Holy Spirit. You got to ask the question, wait a second, what does the Holy Spirit do? He points to Jesus. That's what he's doing right here. He's moved into Peter and he's moved into these apostles and he's moved into these followers of Christ. And they are now making much of Jesus because they're doing what the Holy Spirit does when he moves in. He talks about and makes much of Jesus because they're being indwelt by Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Okay, now go back to Ephesians chapter 3. And then we're going to move back to John chapter 15. Just briefly, Ephesians chapter 3. We're trying to make sense of how Christ dwells in us. And I just, this is just the nail, this is the final nail on this thing. But it's just good because it's where we began this morning. But you may have missed it as we read through it. I'm going to read the same passage I read before. For this reason, Paul says, I'm praying, I'm bowing my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, I'm praying that he may grant you to be strong, strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend all that the saints, with all the saints, what's the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You may not have noticed the passage the first time we read it through, but I hope you're tuned in to look for it here, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's how Christ dwells in you through the person of the Holy Spirit. It's not figurative. It's a real indwelling by the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, all right, John chapter 15, turn over there. Little, little heads up for you. What I was planning on doing this morning, I was planning on moving through that section and then sort of expeditiously considering some uh, outcomes of Christ in you. Three of them. Uh, profound fruit was the first one. Profound power was the second one. And profound hope was the third. And I feel like the Lord, I didn't hear an audible voice. I've never heard an audible voice from the Lord, at least that I, I recall. I think I would recall that. But I had a strong impression that I, you need to tap the brakes, preacher, and be a pastor this morning. Because fruit sermons are dangerous. Fruit sermons are dangerous. You'll understand why by the end of the morning. Toward the end of the morning, I'll, I'll bring that into focus for you. So you understand why we tapped the brakes this morning. But we're going to just spend our, the rest of our time talking about fruit. Okay? From John chapter 15. So you can turn there. If you're not there already, John chapter 15. Remember, John chapter 15 comes after John chapter 14, right? It's where we were earlier in the morning as we're talking about this promise of the Holy Spirit is going to indwell you. I'm going to, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to continue to be with you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now in John chapter 15, he illustrates what he's been talking about in chapter 14. Remember, this is all of the Lord's Supper. This is one context. It's one meal where he's having this big conversation or this big teaching time. It's not a conversation. 
And here he moves into chapter 15 with a beautiful illustration of what it means for us to be in Christ and for Christ to be in us. And a beautiful product of that. So let's look at chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I want to focus especially on verse 5. I think that helps us sort of bring this passage, kind of grab, grab the essence of what he's saying here with this illustration. I am the vine, you, you followers of mine, are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now remember, he's illustrating what he's talked about in chapter 14. I'm going to indwell you through the person of the Holy Spirit as you abide in me. And he illustrates this with a vine and branches and fruit. Okay? It's a simple illustration. Little kids, you can get that. You can imagine a vine, I think particularly, especially he's talking about like a grapevine and branches and grapes. Just visualize that this morning. A, 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 a grapevine, branches, and grapes. That's easy enough. Now, he's the source in this illustration. He is the vine. Okay, That's important. It seems like it's a given, but it's a given that we don't want to miss. He is the source. He is the vine. And we are the branches, and we are connected to him by faith, and we are in union with him, abiding in him as he is abiding and dwelling in us. What's being illustrated here, what's being described here is through the person of the Holy Spirit that Christ is involved with us in a mutual indwelling. Okay, It may not be something you ever thought of, but this is a mutual indwelling. He in us and us in him. A mutual indwelling, you might call it an interdwelling, he in us, and us in him. And that this describes sort of an ongoing abiding state. Don't miss that word, abides in present tense. He's not talking about one spectacular event. Now, nothing that I know of in the New Testament that I can think of is more spectacular than Pentecost. Okay, But that's the day that he moved in. Here he's talking about fruit that comes as a result of abiding, of what happens after Pentecost. For those of us, for those of you and those in our community that might be focused on an event, that are event-driven when it comes to salvation, this is a helpful concept to realize that interdwelling and being in union with Christ is an ongoing thing as we abide in him and he abides in us. And that fruit is a product of that ongoing abiding. And there are two promises here. The first promise is there will be resultant and consequent fruit. And he even describes it as much fruit. He doesn't say we fruit or a tad of fruit. He actually says specifically, abiding in me and I in you will mean for much fruit. Now that's where pastor is going to be preaching this morning in developing the rest of that this morning. I want you to hear from a pastor's heart, not from a preacher that doesn't know you or know myself. 
Okay, hopefully those things will intermesh as we deal with much fruit and the nature of the fruit. But here's the second promise. Apart from the mutual indwelling, there will be no fruit, period. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I want to focus on the first promise, that there are great and God-glorifying things that happen when we're abiding in him and he in us. We will, it says here, bear much fruit. And if you want to understand your purpose as a branch, that's what your purpose is, is to bear fruit. You're to bear the fruit that the vine produces. Remember, he's the source, not you. That ought to be good news for you. Any of you that know yourself, you're not the source. Anybody want to exhale with me about that? Oh, Jerry Clower. Yes, Jerry Clower. Oh, I'm not the source. He is. He's the vine. I'm just the branch. But my purpose is to bear the fruit that he is producing and sending out through me. Okay, it's a beautiful illustration that seems simplistic. But man, it's got some depth and some teeth. Now... If Christ is in us and the, the resultant consequence is that we bear much fruit, then let's ask and answer the question, the resulting question that we ought to be asking is, what's the fruit? Okay, It's right here in this passage. So we're going to spend the rest of our morning doing a little fruit time, fruit consideration of what he's talking about here. We're just going to join him at the Lord's Supper where he's talking about being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, about being indwelled by him through the Holy Spirit, and bearing much fruit, and then talking about what that fruit is. So that's where we're going to spend the rest of our morning, beginning in verse 6, or continuing in verse 6, all the way through verse 16. I'll read it in one section, and we're going to draw out five pieces of fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I, kept, I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I call you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, there's a lot there, all right? I, I, I can sit in your spot and imagine sitting in your spot, not having studied this all week and hearing that read probably for the first time. Maybe you haven't read that in some time and you're hearing that read and you're just like a wash. Like, okay, I hope you're going to help me draw some of that stuff out. What I want you to imagine, how we're going to spend these next few minutes, is as Jesus was speaking those words, okay, remember he's teaching over the Lord's Supper that he's got a big bowl of fruit sitting in front of him. Now, we don't know that that's true, but I wouldn't be surprised. And if in a, you know, a Jewish home, they had a bowl of fruit you know, sitting there, a 
cornucopia or something sitting there with some fruit and various and sundry fruit in there, that imagine he's got at least five various types of fruit in that basket. And over the time that he's saying those two paragraphs, which is all they are in my Bible and yours, that he's pulling out five pieces of fruit and setting it in front of them where they can visualize that he's talking about five things that are products of abiding in Christ and he in us. Five things that come of that interdwelling and that mutual indwelling. Well, here's the first of those, I think. The first little piece of fruit we might, I'm just hoping, I'm committing myself to come up with five pieces of fruit, which might be tricky, and I'll probably forget, so y'all can help me. Here's an orange. The first thing you're going to set out there is an orange in verse 7, the first fruit of Christ abiding in us through the person of the Holy Spirit and us abiding in him is in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The first piece of fruit that he'd be pointing out as he's opening up these outcomes of this this dwelling in them, this orange, is that you're going to have effective prayer when you pray in my name that actually something's going to happen, that's a pretty awesome piece of fruit. I'm glad I picked an orange because I like oranges. And that's, man, I like that. They're messy, but they're good. That, that's like, I like prayer and messy and kind of cumbersome. But when you get it, it's like, oh, it's good. And I, man, I'm, this first promise or this first thing on the fruit list is effective and potent prayer. I'm enjoying that. I hope some of you are. I hope all of you are. What this tells us, though, is that it's pretty close, if not completely a waste of time, if you're not indwelled by Christ and dwelling in Christ to pray. (laughs) For someone that's not dwelled by Christ, that's indwelled by Christ, that's not indwelling Him, that's not abiding in Him and He in them, it's pretty close to wasting your time praying. Now, man, I've heard foxhole prayers at their best. I've heard them, literally foxhole prayers. I've also heard those prayers that students might pray before a test that they didn't study for. Right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? That kind of foxhole prayer. You're not a foxhole, but you kind of are. And if you're not dwelling in him and he's not dwelling in you, it's a wonder if that prayer is even effective. Now, he hears it because he's omniscient and omnipresent, and he knows that you're, you're in a fix. He knows you're in a bind. He knows you're in a foxhole. He knows you didn't study whether you know him or not. But is that prayer effective? What this is telling us is that effective prayer is for those who are in Christ and Christ in them. Man, it's I I can't say that it's a waste of time because I can't possibly know that. But it sure looks like it's pretty close if you're not abiding in him and he in you. Pray. Prayer is for those that are his and are in him and he in them. Effective prayers, that is. Potent ones. Ones that he actually acts on come from those who are in Christ, with Christ in them. It made me think of James. You don't need to turn there. I've got the page marked and I can just read it, flip over there really quickly. But it's one that's pretty straightforward. Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person, i.e. one who is indwelled by Christ who is in union with Christ, who is wearing his righteousness, that is considered sinless because Christ was sinless, one whose sinfulness was put on Christ. There's lots of stuff we can put in that righteous person statement. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That's the point that's being made. 
Effective prayer is for those who are indwelled by Christ, who are dwelling in Christ. Man, I feel like I have a front row seat to this every single week. We've started reading as a family, She Reads Truth. You remember our reading plan? Yeah, I'm secure in my manliness enough to read She Reads Truth. It's the same Bible. It's, and I think that He Reads Truth probably takes you down the same path. I don't know why they got to go all he, she on the thing, but they broke it up. So we're going down the She Reads Truth route. And after we read the Bible, we pray. And as a family, daily we're praying about things that we see unfold days later, if not hours later. Not in every case, but often enough where you go, huh, these prayers are working. I also have a front row seat in, in, in the guys that I meet with on Wednesday mornings. Man, the guys that are meeting together on Wednesday mornings for prayer regularly, you see things that we pray about that unfold the next day. I mean, it's crazy. One I'm thinking about a couple weeks ago, someone was sharing about this couple that we really wanted to minister to, but they weren't really good at asking for help. And, you know, we're like, well, let's pray about it. At least we can pray, you know. I mean, we're not saying that or thinking that, but there's a little bit of that in you, you know. Well, at least we can pray. You can't force somebody into asking for help. You want to push that. The next day, they walked into the office and walked up to Aaron Adele and said, we need some help. And we're all like elbowing each other like, man, seriously. Either prayer is just bringing us into awareness of what he's up to, or he's actually hearing and doing things of the righteous, uh, an effective prayer of a righteous man. Now, I don't know who's righteous in that room, but somebody's reckoned righteous. Bill Ruth, I don't know, Jerry Morris, somebody. I'm like, Yahoo, Bill and Jerry are here, so we'll get something done. Morris, thankfully, guys are gathering week after week, and we're seeing the product of what's being promised right here. Fruit hanging from the tree, oranges everywhere for answered prayer. If you're not part of a weekly prayer group, and I'm not talking the prayers that you pray as you're driving down the road, as you hear about somebody that's not feeling well. Those are good prayers. Please continue in those prayers. But if you're not part of a weekly group of people or a a, a weekly gathering of a group of people to pray, you're missing out on a front row seat to fruit. You're missing out on a front row seat of oranges everywhere. I'm telling you, it's wonderful. I really enjoy it. It's a blessing. Things happen as a result of prayer. And it's just really good fruit of our being in him and he in us that our prayers are effective. I was thinking... Each of these sort of fruits that we're going to talk about today, and there's only just a couple more, four more, they're different. They have different aspects or different sort of characters. And this fruit is, is kind of like tulips for me. Tulips, I know that's not fruit. I know we're talking about a flower. But those of you that have planted tulips, you know what I'm talking about. You put that, that bulb in the ground, which is like this ugly old bulb. And you're like, hey, where should I put this thing? And you find a hole. Christy's like, yeah, right, like you do this. I've seen Christy do it. <laughs> It's kind of funny because I've never planted a tulip. But Christy's done it before. You know, you're like, let's stick this bulb over here, okay? And then like a month later, you're like, where did I even put that thing? I wonder if that thing's coming up or if you're even thinking about it at all. And then one day you walk out there and you go, looky there. That thing just came to life. And not only did it come to life, it's gorgeous. That old ugly bulb turned into something glorious, but it turned into something glorious on God's time, not mine. And the worst thing I could do is dig it up or poke at it and try and force it to happen. It had to happen on his time and on his terms. And that's beautifully the way prayer works. It's like tulips. I'm mixing all kinds of metaphors today. Oranges, tulips, whatever. 
The next fruit is in verse 10. The next piece of fruit, we'll say he pulled out as an apple. There's no way I'm going to remember these, but um, we'll say it's an apple. In verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, this of the fruit basket is probably the most difficult. Because if you read this the way it reads, then you're going to be in a bind. I'm going to read it again and just look at it face value, what what you think is being said here in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in my love. What sounds like is being communicated here is sort of an alarming message if you're really paying attention. What sounds like being communicated here is be a good boy and girl and I'll love you. Be a good one, and my father and I will really love you. Uh, George Bush impression or something. God does not sound like George Bush. He's Scottish. But it's an alarming message because even the most despicable parents don't operate that way. Think about that. Do you know of a single parent? If you do, you're a despicable parent. If you love your child less when they're disobedient, you're a despicable parent. Man, my kids, when they're disobedient, in some ways I love them more. Man, I hurt with them when they're disobedient. I might get angry. I might get frustrated. I might not handle that well, but I don't love them less. And if we who are fallen people love our children with a better kind of love than that, then let's not impose that on God, that he's going to love us more if we're good boys and girls. What a roller coaster you're in for if that's the way you view God's love for you. I'm heartbroken for you in that. Man, even a crummy parent doesn't love their kid that way. Let's look at what's really being said here. This is coming from the same God that said... Pray for your enemies, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. That's not the way God loves us. He doesn't just love the good boys and girls. Thank goodness. He doesn't love you when you're performing well more. This is the same God in Romans chapter 5. Listen to this passage. I hope it's familiar to you. This is the way the gospel goes down. In Romans chapter 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled. If your view of God is his love for you is based on your performance, you are living a miserable spiritual existence. That is a miserable spiritual existence. And that is not what's being communicated here. That would be like the fruit of obedience is God's love. Remember, he's talking about fruit in this passage. He's dealing with a bowl full of fruit. And this fruit would be, he would be saying, okay, this is not, in this case, this apple is not the fruit of you abiding in me and me and you. This is the fruit of you being a good boy. I'm going to love you more. It would be a complete departure from every other piece of fruit that he talks about in the bowl. It's not a fruit of being a good boy that he's going to love you more. What he's saying here, he said in the verse right in front of it, in in verse 9. 
As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And then he starts talking obedience. Abide in my love and the fruit will be obedience. Now we can all exhale together. Okay, now let's get vine and fruit, vine and branch in the right order there. Because if the branch is somehow my performance, there will never be fruit. Not lasting, abiding fruit that makes any sense, that makes any difference, that makes any point. Man, I need to get that sorted out. Don't read that passage that way. It should be read the way God has moved in the rest of this storyline where he sets his love on enemies. He sets his love on sinners. He says, pray for your enemies or love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. His love on us, for us, is not based on our performance. The obedience that he's talking about here is fruit of abiding in his love. It's fruit. Now, it's the obedience, the good kind, that comes from abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in you. Now, let me just make this brief comment. You can scare some folks into obeying. God doesn't operate that way. Parents, you can do that with your kids because I've done it with the best of them. I've called it John Wayne parenting over the years. You know what I'm talking about. You do this or else. You're going to... You're going to feel my wrath. Now, there are times, all right, I'll admit, where that's all you got in your repertoire. <laughs> you're like, all right, I'm down to nothing. I got nothing here, and it's all, all I got is you're going to be in a world of hurt if you don't do what I tell you to do. <laughs> you can scare people into, into obedience like John Wayne parenting for a time. But real obedience comes from something deeper. Real obedience comes from parents taking the time with their kids to help them understand why and to show them that they love them, not less if they've struggled or been disobedient, but maybe more, and coming alongside them and in some ways mutually indwelling each other. It's a wonderful picture of the kind of obedience that we're talking about here. Real obedience comes from mutual indwelling with Christ. That's the kind that lasts after the kids leave home, parents. That's the kind that'll last after the kids leave home, and that's the kind that obeys when no one is watching. John Wayne forced obedience. When nobody's watching, all bets are off. I talked about the character of different kinds of fruit. Here's the character of this kind of fruit, this obedience fruit. It's slow-growing. Slow-growing fruit. I don't know of any fruit that grows slower than obedience. Some folks, you hear stories when they come to faith in Christ, their lives are transformed in the blink of an eye in every respect. But, you know, that's rare. And I don't want to dismiss that or discount that as awesomeness. But most of the folks that I've ever known that have ever come to Christ find that obedience plays out over years, over time. This is where I want you to hear from a pastor and not a preacher. I'm living the same Christian life that you are. And obedience come, unfolds over time, over years. I was thinking about this illustration that oftentimes, usually, if not always, his illustrations really can be perfect even when they're exhausted, unlike human illustrations. His illustrations, though, if he's talking about a vine, a grapevine with a grape branch and grapes, then just consider this. Grapes are a healthy food to eat. 
But few things taste any better than fresh grapes plucked straight from the vine. In addition, grapes grow in virtually every area in the country. It all takes a spot, or all it takes is a spot to plant them, and most home gardeners can enjoy this tasty fresh fruit from their own vines. However, grape vines take time to grow and to become established before they begin producing fruit. This is from Ehow. I mean, that's where I go when I have questions. <laughs> Anybody else? Ehow, right there. But it goes on. Grape vines require patience. What kind of tree was that that split in our front yard like a banana? Bradford pear. What a beautiful tree. A fast-growing tree, but a weak, Nancy boy tree like I've never seen. I love it. It's beautiful. I mean, we loved every time of the year that when the, the leaves would come out and stuff, or the, the blossoms. And, but a little bit of ice and that thing split like a banana. It grew fast and it didn't go the distance. Grapevines require patience. They take time. Ehow continues. The first several years after grapevines are planted, they do not produce fruit. Huh. During those first few years, grapevines root structure grows and the vine develops strong and numerous branches to hold all those grapes it eventually produces. But do not expect to see any grapes until at least the third year. Huh. In addition, it takes about five to six years for grapevines to begin producing a consistent, heavy crop of grapes. But the wait is worth it. One mature vine can produce 10 pounds or more of fresh grapes per season. Much fruit, but it takes time. So some of you that are sitting around, this is where the pastor wants to speak to you. And you're looking at your, your, your fruit and you're like, Man, I don't have a lot of fruit in my life. It's pretty lean. That fruit bowl is kind of lean, and that branch doesn't have a lot of, a lot of, or that, a lot of fruit on it. Maybe give yourself a break. Maybe give yourself a break and give yourself some time. Man, the spiritual journey of faith is not like being an Amazon Prime member. I love Amazon Prime. You think it, and it's like it's on your doorstep the next day. It's like, voila. But that's not the way your spiritual journey works. That's not the way the journey of faith works. Not even close. It takes years for the fruit of the Spirit to grow in you. One of those being self-control. Man, I hurt with you as you're wrestling with sin. As maybe a new believer. Or as an old believer that's still dealing with a besetting sin. Don't quit quitting. Don't give up. Hold on to the vine. And in time, he'll produce the fruit of righteousness in that. The fruit of victory in that. Give yourself a break and give yourself some time. The next piece of fruit is in verse 11. We've got an orange and an apple. Let's set out a, a coconut right here. It's just whatever popped in my head. It has nothing to do with anything. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. That's fitting. Coconuts are joyful. That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Okay, this is the third fruit that comes from being indwelled by Christ and us indwelling him. Joy in Jesus and the joy of Jesus. And I'm not talking about the cheesy kind of joy that just is such a turnoff for me with people that sort of do those little sayings back and forth. And if any of you ever do these sayings, that's cool. Just please don't do it with me. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Man, sometimes you just feel like Job, and you're like, all right, seriously, I know God is God, but I'm just flat hacked. 
I'm just flat hurting. But the joy of Christ is this steady, deep holding on to something that you know is firm and anchor for the soul. It's not this big cheesy smile all the time and cheesy sayings, quippy sayings. It's something deeper. I found a nice quote from from John Piper on joy. He said, it's a good feeling in the soul. Be okay with feelings. Feelings are not bad. They're creatures. Okay, Something God gave you. It is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. It's a nice definition of joy. Now, verse 12 will give us our next piece of fruit. We'll call that a grapefruit. Verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Abiding in Jesus and Jesus in us means real tangible love. Remember the context. Remember what's about to go down. Remember what's about to unfold here. He even says in this passage, greater love had no man than this. And he laid down his life for his friends like he's about to do. The kind of love that he's talking about here that's going to be a fruit of abiding in him and he and you is a tangible incarnate love. First of all, he's actually there physically having washed their feet with real hands, washing off real dirt. And he's going to go to a very real cross. We're not talking figurative love here. We're not talking sentiment. You know, sentiment doesn't get dirty. But real love gets dirty. And that's a fruit of abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in you is you're going to have a real, get-your-hands-dirty, tangible love for other people. Lastly is in verse 16, the last piece of fruit. And we'll, um, I don't know what to call that, a um, watermelon, big, big piece of fruit. It's a big one. That's fitting because it's a big one. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This last piece of fruit to consider in this bowl of fruit that he shared of, 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 that are products of being in Christ and Christ in you is that you will be a witness to the world as you are abiding in him and he in you. The key word here in verse 16 being go. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. It's a key word that's connecting to the concept of actually going into your workplace, going into your neighborhoods, maybe going to the far corners of the world as a missionary or whoever are going to serve with a missionary, but going and bearing fruit, go abide in me and I in you, In the world, go take that out loud, sweet aroma of worship, wherever you may go. Go in union with Christ wherever you're going. Take him with you. Now, lastly, the fruit and how these things come together is the outcome of persevering dependence on the vine. Abiding in him. Fueled by, driven by faith encompassing all the believer's life and the product of our witness. Talking about um, this with Christy this morning, with Scott, when I got in, I had a lot more sermon. I was going to deal with that just sort of at the surface level, all of those things. And I realized I could leave a bunch of people sitting here going, man, I don't see a bunch of this stuff in my life, so I wonder if I'm really in him or he in me. 
That's why I said fruit sermons can be and often are dangerous. I want to encourage you this morning as we're considering a fruit sermon that you could walk around looking at doing a little fruit inspection and asking yourself the question, why am I not seeing all these fruit? Let me help you with this thought. If a branch had a mind, remember we're branches, he's a vine. If a branch had a mind, that branch would be best served by focusing on the vine, not focusing on fruit. I want you to hear me say that. Like a pastor and a brother and a friend that loves you and cares about you. You, you, you will be, in, you'll be a miserable mess if you spend your lives focused on fruit. Focus instead on the vine. That's what good branches do. Because when you focus on the vine, there you find nourishment. There you're connected to the source. And the beauty is that fruit happens. Fruit just happens. Fruit takes time. And it happens in His time, on His terms, for His glory. I want to encourage you too that if you have felt some conviction from a life that is completely void of fruit, that it could be two things. It could be that you're not in Christ. And he's not in you. I don't want to set your mind at ease if you don't see fruit in your life. That, ah, it's all good. Because it may not be good. You may never have trusted Christ as your absolute Savior and Lord. Like, he's my only hope for the future. He's my only hope for dealing with death and eternity. If you haven't done that, you won't see any fruit. Not any lasting fruit. So if you look at your life and you see fruitlessness... I want to encourage you to reach out to someone and ask for some help with that. I would love to be that person, but I don't have to be that person. It might be the person that invited you. It might be a life group shepherd. It might be a friend that you know that knows the Lord. Ask them what it means to trust Christ as Savior and Lord. Ask them, how how do I do that? If there's something in you that's like, I see that I don't have that and I need that and I want that, then turn to somebody. He's not going to let you get away with that on your own and figure that out on your own. You will, it will require others to come alongside you and help you understand what that means. He's connecting you to one another by doing that. I urge you, if you see fruitlessness, that may be the first problem. The second problem may be there is some sense of degree and measure with the word abides. If you see absolute fruitlessness or not much fruitless or not fruitfulness in your life, it could be that you're not really abiding in him at all. It could be that you're not really abiding in him, dwelling in him. You remember one of the passages that we read in here was talking about abiding or his words abiding in you? Are you spending time in his word? Are you hearing and preaching and are you hearing preaching and teaching of his word and engaging it and embracing it? Are you thinking like, God, how can I walk in what I'm hearing? How can I enjoy what I'm hearing? What does it tell me about you? What does it tell me about me? What does it tell me about tomorrow? What does it tell me about this circumstance? If you're doing those things, you're going to have some fruit because you're really connected to the vine. If you're not... If you're just doing life and this stuff here is just sort of this parallel thing and you're parallel to it in every way and there's no intersection, you're not going to see a lot of fruit. So I want to encourage you with some real basic stuff like make church a priority. 
Really, make it a priority. People get sick. That's okay. I get that. We're online. And even if it's not us, engage a people. If this is not your church home and you're visiting today or you're with family or friends and we have one shot with you this morning, make, listen, hear this, like Hans and Franz, hear it now, think about it later. Make church a priority. You can't abide in him apart from abiding with his people in him. You abide together. And you can read his word, sure. You can sit at home and read Thessalonians and get a lot out of it. That's really cool. The Holy Spirit indwelled you too if you're a believer. Okay, But realize the letter of Thessalonians, I'm just picking Thessalonians, I could have picked Ephesians, was written to a church. You wouldn't even have read it had you not been at church. I'm thankful that this is available and in our language and any, you can have a number of them in, in your own home, in your own lap. Very, uh, it, it's a wonderful blessing to have that. But realize that most of our New Testament was written to the church. So make church a priority. Make gathering with his people a priority. To hear the preached and taught word. To gather with his people. To sing true things back to him about him. To bump into people. To fellowship with people. To give them a hug or a pat on the back. Or weep with someone. Man, do some practical stuff. Abiding in Him has some real practical, or there's some real practical steps. Read His Word. She reads truth. Guys, if you're uncomfortable with that, He reads truth. Read it. Man, read it. And I promise you, fruit will happen. It will happen. Now, We're going to distribute the elements here in a moment and have the supper, but here's something I want you to consider in these next few minutes as we have the supper. I want you, as as these elements are distributed, I want you to enjoy the vine. I want us in these next few minutes to do what we said we wanted to do if we were a wise branch, to focus on and enjoy the vine. Hear the fruit stuff. Hear it. Maybe do a little examination there. That could be a fruitful thing, pun intended. It could be helpful. Okay, do that. But in these next few minutes on this supper, what we do every single week is we sit down as a bunch of branches and we enjoy a sweet and good vine. We enjoy it together. It's part of worship together. It's part of abiding in Him is that we take together of His supper Enjoy the vine in these next few minutes. Branches together enjoying his love that was incarnate and costly. Enjoying his incarnate and costly love. Let's distribute the elements.